This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. To the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, the nation's best-known political prisoner will celebrate his 67th birthday later this month if Mumia Abu-Jamal survives his latest health crisis. And most people think of Maroons as enslaved people that escaped to hideouts in the mountains. However, history shows that Maroons often found freedom at sea. But first, George Floyd's death at the hands of Minneapolis police set off the largest protest in U.S. history. The trial of the cop charged in Floyd's murder was still in progress when police in a nearby town killed another unarmed black man. In Washington, Sputnik radio host Garland Nixon spoke with Dr. Gerald Horn, the prolific writer and professor of African-American studies and history at the University of Houston. Dr. Horn says blacks have always been in conflict with the U.S. state and its police. The bodies of enslaved Africans, which were about 4 million, circa 1860, right before the U.S. Civil War, were the most valuable investment in the United States of America at that time, Uh, more valuable than the factories, for example. And as a result, these were prized investments. But these were prized investments that oftentimes collaborated with the real and imagined enemies of the United States of America, That is to say, in 1814, as you know more than most, when the Redcoats invaded Washington and torched the city, uh, they were joined by black people who then fled on ships to Trinidad and Tobago. You had uh, black people who were collaborating with Native Americans, particularly in Florida, in some of the bloodiest wars the United States fought before Vietnam. And so this was a troublesome property. The problem is, is that this snapshot of history that I've just provided to you has not been excavated sufficiently. What I mean is that oftentimes uh, when I talk talk to young people, or even old people for that matter, uh, when I say that I'm a historian, well, they say, well, you know, what does it have to do with what's going on today? Well, it has everything to do with what's going on today. Uh, obviously, you can't begin to understand why Black people are disproportionately Uh, executed in the streets, as happened in Minnesota just the other day, without understanding this disturbing history that I've just recounted to you. And then there's the other side of the coin, which is that many of our historians, and, and then they instruct those who tend to follow history, they instruct these students with what is fundamentally a false and misleading line that suggests that the creation of the United States of America was a great leap forward for humanity, certainly was not a great leap forward for the Native Americans who lost their land, and certainly wasn't a great leap forward for black people either, uh, who found that they were persecuted even more relentlessly after this so-called republic was proclaimed. And so in between ignorance and oftentimes proud ignorance of the past and a misunderstanding of the past, you end up with these scenarios that you see on a regular basis, particularly on cable television, where people are crying, singing the blues, understandably, but with little understanding of the deeper roots that have led us 
to the point of catastrophe. And without any deeper understanding of what has led us to the point of catastrophe, they are ill-disposed and ill-prepared to devise remedies to help us be rescued from this dire scenario, which we're now facing. Now, with regard to mistaking a taser for a pistol, well, my understanding is is that the suburb outside of Minnesota, uh, where the officer in question, who I understand has just retired, was operating, that there were protocols with regard to these two weapons. And in fact, if you look at these two weapons, you'll see many differences. Oftentimes, a Glock or a pistol has a safety. Oftentimes, a taser does not. They're different colors. But let's take at face value that the officer did mistake her, her Glock for a taser or a pistol for a taser. Well, then that does not obscure or undermine why it happened in this particular case with a young black man. Why hadn't it happened before? Why, had, why didn't it happen with a young Euro-American man, for example? And what was the burden of history that was weighing on this officer's mind when she supposedly mistook a pistol and thought, thought that the, uh, she was pulling a taser and she actually pulled a pistol. In talking about the, the historical issue here, when I hear all lives matter, you know what I think about? All men are created equal. There's the history. All lives matter. All lives, all men are created equal. Didn't even mean all men were created equal. And it certainly didn't include a woman. It wasn't men in the kind like mankind where they're speaking to all human. It was very specifically men and very specifically wealthy white men. And so today, when I hear all lives matter, it calls to mind the reality that the history of the U.S. says that all men, all lives, all whatever is usually pretty specific and it doesn't include people that look like you and us. Your thoughts on that? Well, this is what happens when you substitute mythology for history. Uh, that is to say, you might as well be smoking your drapes when you're trying to perform in a, a hard test, for example. You're going to come up with incorrect answers and incorrect responses. And in fact, one of the things I'm wondering right now is what will be the impact on the trial of Officer Derek Chauvin, uh, who, as you know, uh, is really under the gun, at least figuratively, in terms of the powerful and persuasive evidence that has been presented by the prosecution thus far, it makes me wonder, it causes me to speculate as to what might be the impact on that jury of this incident taking place uh, within walking distance of uh, the trial, and also uh, whether or not it will be somehow to the advantage uh, of the defendant, the fact that uh, this latest killing is garnering uh, headlines. And I should also say uh, that this, we're focusing on Minnesota, which is understandable in light of the Chauvin trial, uh, but I understand that in your neck of the woods, in Tacoma Park, uh, just outside the District of Columbia line, uh, there was a recent uh, shooting of young black men. Uh, once again, supposedly a mistake by the perpetrator. You have to wonder, why are they always making mistakes when it comes to shooting young black men? But that part 
of the historical narrative that I was just trying to construct for you. And speaking of which, uh, let me recommend the latest documentary by the Haitian filmmaker Raoul Peck, Exterminate All the Brutes. It's a very searing and capacious four-hour documentary looking at the bloodstained history of the United States, focusing on these issues that I've just outlined for you. That is to say, Native American dispossession and enslavement of Africans. And in some ways, in many ways, in most ways, it outstrips by far uh, what you might learn or think that you're learning in the classroom. Dr. Horn, additionally, here are my also, uh, some other thoughts I have, again, connecting the history to the present. Since colonialism continues today, I mean, right now, what did we do with Africans? We went to the U.S., we, the U.S. went to Africa and stole its resources, but its resources are what it calls now human capital. Right now, we're trying to steal the oil from Venezuela, the lithium from Bolivia, Syria. Well, they've got oil. They've got a strategic geopolitical location. Here's the bottom line to me. We can't, the U.S. can't acknowledge its history, and it can't admit that what it did in stealing the resources in Africa and around the world were wrong, because to admit and acknowledge that it was wrong then is to admit and acknowledge that it never stopped, and we're doing the exact same thing today. Your thoughts? Well, perhaps even more tragic is the fact that the victims of U.S. imperialism in North America, speaking of the black population, are seemingly blithely unaware of the necessity to reach out to other victims across the globe. For example, in Venezuela, for example, in Africa, for example, in Cuba. Uh, I, I know I've said it before, but it bears repeating that the Organization of American States, an international body, sits within walking distance of your studio. But I don't think I'll be very surprised if the black residents and their allies in Washington, D.C., would organize some sort of ticket line uh, at the OAS headquarters, not, not to mention go inside the building and try to file a petition calling for peacekeeping troops to be brought into neighborhoods of the United States to keep our people from being slain in the street like dogs. Indeed, I have in my mind's eye the, the image of President Xi Jinping of China, sitting by his telephone, wondering when some black American leader or organization is going to call him and request that he put his nation's muscle behind this idea of sending peacekeeping troops to neighborhoods in the United States, particularly in light of what we mentioned on these airways before, the fact that his delegates at the Alaska summit just a few weeks ago pointedly and specifically denounced what they called the, quote, slaughter, unquote, of black people in the streets. And yet we see the same old story, black people getting shot in the streets, people singing the blues and boohooing like babies, but no material outreach that would seek to remedy this dastardly situation. If I didn't know better, I would think, that some of our leaders and organizations actually do know better, but they're too frightened to do anything to change the situation, or perhaps worse, they don't have the vision, nor intelligence, nor political chops to change the situation. 
The other thing I think, Dr. Horn, um, looking at it, this, and this is something that I talk about a lot. I say, you know, the Black Lives Matter people, the people who are um, fighting for, you know, to stop oppression and violence against black people in America are missing the boat. There is no way that the United, in the same way that a guy who goes out in the street and he gets in a fight in a bar, he gets in a fight with road rage, he gets in a fight in a way, on the way home, he gets home, he's going to beat the crap out of his wife and kids because he is a violent person. You're not going to, if you start giving this guy therapy, no therapist is going to say, we only want to work on your violence at home. You can continue your violence in the street because this is a violent person and they that their, their violence must be dealt with. It's one. And that's why I argue you that the people who are only looking at internal violence are missing the boat. The difference between our foreign and our domestic policy is only grammatical. Your thoughts? Well, this brings us to the immediate question is what is going to happen to this officer who, according to the authorities, is in a sense being accused of homicide, of being accused of murder. And I think that the attorney general of the state of Minnesota, speaking of former Congressional Black Caucus member, Keith Ellison, who is now the attorney general, as he did with the case of Derek Chauvin, needs to take over the prosecution of this officer, needs to pour capital and resources into this prosecution, a la the Chauvin trial, where you've seen experts uh, pour into that courtroom, because I think that one of the things that can be done, absent any sort of international outreach, which it does not seem to be on the agenda for whatever reason, is prosecuting these miscreants, these officers with blood on their hands, to the fullest extent of the law, that will send, I trust, a message to their fellow officers that you may think you can get away with murder. But after we put you through this judicial ring and force you to empty your pockets and empty the pockets of your union to bring forward money to hire a lawyer and experts and all the rest, you will wish that you had never heard of black people because we're going to be haunting you till the day you die. And it's possible we'll be hunting you even after you die. That was Dr. Gerald Horn speaking on Sputnik Radio in Washington. Justin Dunavant is a postdoctoral student with a deep interest in Maroons, the enslaved people that escaped captivity and established relatively free settlements in the Americas. Dunavant has researched enslaved and Maroon communities in the Caribbean, Central America, and Africa. He's written an article titled, Have Confidence in the Sea, Maritime Maroons and Fugitive Geographies. Denevant says people that escaped from slavery lived in lots of places besides up in the mountains, thanks to their seagoing skills. Definitely. You know, I tell people the sea sort of has this dialectical nature to it when we talk about, you know, people from Africa and of African descent. You know, on the one hand, it was this, this means by which Africans were brought over enslaved to the Americas. But then on the other end, there's this whole other way in which the sea was used by Africans to obtain their freedom. And in many ways, it was sort of a liminal space um, where these identities were created, recreated, and in some cases, you know, disentangled. And I think that we need to pay more attention to it as, as a space, as a generative space, 
uh, where these identities sort of develop, become, and are recreated. And so that's a little bit of what I was trying to do in this article is to show that there, there is a history, uh, a black history that occurs on the ocean. It's not just land-based and that there's a lot of potentials and opportunities that exist on the sea. Yeah, you call this oceanic literacy. Many would-be escapees and successful maroons tended to cluster not far away in the mountains or in the rainforest, but close to where they ran away from and to where many of their folks still resided. And I get from reading your writings that many would have situated themselves near advantageous waterways as well. Yeah, so, you know, these islands, especially islands like St. Croix, traditionally known as II, are, are relatively small island locations. And so it's not, you know, unheard of to be located very close to the sea. And in many cases, they often are required to go to the ocean to, to get there, you know, to get fish, to get water resources and other means of engagement. So it's not unheard of that they would have had these knowledges, not only of navigating these seas, but also of, of making canoes, um, whether it's they're involved in, in local fishing practices, or in some cases they were actually involved in, in larger sea turtle expeditions that would have taken them up to, if not actually on other islands during the course of their enslavement. Yes, Maroons saw the world differently than you and I. They saw it through a geography of escape. And you've made an in-depth study of these geographies, both on land and on water, in what's now the U.S. Virgin Islands. Yeah, and so my, my intention behind that was, you know, we often don't hear the stories of what Danish enslavement was like, and a lot of us don't readily associate the Danes with slavery. Um, so by taking this lens and focusing on the, the Danish West Indies, what is now the U.S. Virgin Islands, we're able to get that unique lens it's also interesting because our current understandings of colonial geographies tend to cause us to separate out islands by their colonizers. So we often look at the French as one sort of colony, the British as another, and so forth. But really, in focusing on the lives of these maritime maroons, we understand that their understanding of geography transcends these colonial boundaries. So we have enslaved Africans under the Danish rule that may have actually been enslaved on a British plantation, and then they're escaping to Spanish colonialism, which at the time didn't readily have plantation systems set up in places like Puerto Rico, or traditionally known as Boracane. And there's a whole series of other colonial laws then that, that sort of are used to attract these uh, formerly enslaved Africans to run away to Spanish settlements. Um, and there's some great work going on around that and really understanding how these colonial powers are pulling from each other's uh, motivations and intentions and difficulties to try to encourage this sort of internal migration of Africans throughout the Caribbean. As you point out, many of these were rather small places. And comparatively speaking, Maroons, many Maroon groups loomed as formidable military antagonists. And they were forced to engage in warfare with Curry Bays, with French, with all of the colonists, and sometimes with free blacks as well, as well as enslaved folks who were dragooned into warfare against the Maroons. Definitely. You know, in, enslaved people have always been used for political ends 
um, in these colonial projects. And traditionally, we think of them as laborers on these plantations, but they're, to a large extent, they were also used for military purposes, um, not just from colonial powers, but also from individuals like pirates. Um, some of these enslaved people were conscripted as pirates on, on pirate ships. And then as a result of that, these colonial powers pulled from the military use and expertise of, of other groups. As you mentioned, indigenous groups from other islands, um, the Mosquito from Central America, for example, were often sent to some of these Caribbean islands to fight on behalf of these other colonial powers. And in some cases, Maroons were tasked through treaties to not necessarily fighting with these European powers, um, although they did to some extent, particularly um, in Puerto Rico, um, when you had British invasions into the island, but also just returning individuals who were escaping to other islands. And uh, Vincent Brown, you know, in his most recent book on Tacky's Revolt, has done a good job of arguing that some of these maroon rebellions that we note are actually extensions of African military campaigns. Uh, because, you know, a lot of these individuals were actually captured as prisoners of war. And so as a result of that, you have military trained individuals that are now enslaved that don't lose their, their military strategy. And, you know, many of these colonial powers see that as a benefit if they can harness it to use them for their military might. And we see it also um, throughout Haiti as well. As you know, the successful rebellion of Haiti was enacted by a number of, of Maroons with uh, militaristic training. You've been studying Maroons all over the world, but you also write about closer to home uh, sites of Maroon activity, the Great Dismal Swamp in Virginia, and of course, lots of places in Florida. And many of these are waterways of a kind. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When we think of Maroons, we often initially get attracted to this idea of large settlements and communities. But the idea of a, of a Maroon as somebody who was formerly enslaved and has now escaped opens up many possibilities for where people would have gone and ended up, um, even on an, an individualistic perspective. You know, if one person could get away and escape and arrive at a new location, um, in some cases they were able to blend into these new locations because they didn't know that, you know, somebody was formerly enslaved, sometimes even miles away. And so it, it opens up a, a world of possibility. And I think that that's important for us to understand when we think about the United States because there were a handful of maroon communities like the Great Dismal Swamp, particularly areas like Fort Mose in Florida. But by and large, we don't have these, these grand maroon communities like Palmares had in Brazil and other entities. And so thinking about the, not only the maroons themselves, but the ways in which the landscape afforded them the opportunity for marinage is important. And the sea is important. And then also the waterways, as you mentioned, is important. Because a lot of transportation, uh, when we're looking specifically at the 1700s and the 1800s, occurred on the water, uh, particularly in Caribbean islands where heavy rains could flood roads, dirt roads very easily. Um, a lot of people preferred to travel by canoe. And so in many ways, you could look at a canoe as, as a modern day car system or highway system um, that many people were traversing and traveling through. In the slave south of the United States, Black people, mostly slaves, made up about 90% of the sailors who were engaged in trade on the rivers and the coastal waterways of the south. That was a huge resource, I would think, for those who wanted to escape and go maroon. Yes, you know, some of these people use their expertise and, and their, their roles as sailors to, in some cases, when they would land at a new port, they would abscond, they would, you know, blend into the community and then essentially leave their bondage. 
In other cases, colonial powers had to enforce certain laws around maritime communities because of the ways in which, you know, enslaved Africans were, you know, taking advantage of their situations. Um, there's an interesting case that comes out of St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands, where the colonial government in 1706 actually required that they cut down all trees enough large enough to build canoes because enslaved Africans were making their own canoes and escaping the island. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of these people who were sailing these waters were African people. And if a European sailor came in, they would often need local expertise to navigate these waters. Um, oftentimes, the maps that they were using to sail weren't detailed enough to know the specific intricacies of these waterways. So you would hire a local guide when you get into a nearby port, and they would help you to navigate the surrounding waters, making sure you don't hit coral reefs or, or you don't hit a sandbar. So, um, yeah, definitely all those knowledges and literacies and technologies uh, become critically important in the colonial era. You write that back in the 17th century, that is the 1600s, escaped slaves, maroons, from Barbados actually populated the islands of St. Lucia and St. Vincent and Tobago and Dominica. Yeah, you know, many of these islands, a lot of people, you know, when we think about the idea of how colonialism worked in the Caribbean, we often think it all happened at one time. And really, these, these European colonial powers were taking island by island. And in many cases, they don't settle some of these islands in the Caribbean, particularly the smaller islands and the Lesser Antilles, until relatively later in the colonial project, which meant that there are still indigenous populations living on there. And that afforded enslaved Africans and future Maroons the opportunity to escape to those islands. So in some cases, by the time you actually have formal colonization of these islands, uh, by Europeans, you already have Black and Indigenous people who have been living collectively in these spaces. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting perspective. Again, when we think about Maroon geography specifically and Black geographies more generally, you've got a Black geography in the Caribbean that isn't necessarily in relation to that white geography, specifically the plantation. How does a study of what the Maroons did, why they did it, where they went while they were doing it, uh, how does it give us a deeper knowledge uh, that's useful today in terms of the Black liberation movement? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I think for one, I think it's just important to know that the resources often that we have to understand the past are incomplete. And so this project and other projects are attempting to think through and think with, as one of my colleagues uh, discusses, to think with Maroons and in terms of understanding what their motivations would, been, would have been. It wasn't always necessarily this direct outright resistance to slavery as an institution, but it may have been an immediate reaction to, for example, mistreatment on a plantation, other motivations, the sale of a loved one to another island that they want to see, or other things that could have been, you know, impending punishments that they would have received for breaking some sort of colonial law. So all these things have us rethinking, you know, what these motivations were. I think for the current generation, as we continue to peel back and understand the ways in which Maroons existed and developed Maroon identities, uh, it helps us to really position what it is that we're fighting for in terms of liberation. Part of the larger project I'm working on is trying to understand this relationship between enslaved people and free people in the Caribbean in relationship to ecology and environments. 
And I think oftentimes we, when we think about this idea of freedom, we think of it from a people-centric perspective, particularly in this relationship to colonialism and bondage. But one of the things that understanding maritime maroons and other maroons tell us is that this relationship is often linked to environment. And this idea that people are commodified at the same time that lands are commodified. And in many ways, we don't think about the fact that lands are still under a sort of, of commodified purview or entity. And that causes us to not think about, you know, where we dump our waste or how we're polluting waters and the ways in which it's impacting not just us, but also future generations. And I think understanding that Maroons had a literacy of the ocean that was not only understanding of how the waters work, but of certain geographic sites on the water that we don't think about causes us then to reposition where is it that we're going to locate our fight for justice? You know, is it just going to be a land-based discussion or are we going to actively think of, you know, these environmental discussions that occur on the sea and on the waters and understand that our connections, our ties and our forms of collaboration uh, really transcend what we think of as a geographic boundary and trying to find those unifying points between people of African descent. So the article I wrote about having confidence in the sea, there are two things I wanted to do with that piece. One was to actually use contemporary geospatial data. Um, so we're using actually modern day ocean currents to try to map a geography that isn't readily mapped through colonial records. And uh, that's, that's sort of the one of the intentions behind it. The other was to pull from other artistic practices to more fully understand what it is these motivations were behind these Africans who were becoming Maroons and to try to get a better purview into what that life would have been like. So if anybody reads the article, they'll see that there's an image at the very beginning of the article. And that was actually an image that I created out of tissue paper as I was writing the article to think through what the Maroon experience would have been like. Because we don't have ready archival records from maritime Maroons that describe that process. So in making that piece, I had to actively think about, you know, what time of day would they likely have left? What else would have been happening on the ocean? What would have been on the boat with them? Uh, what directions would they have been going? How would they have been navigating? All of these different aspects that the archival records don't ask you to interrogate. And so I'm trying to encourage, you know, other scholars, my colleagues, and others out there just more generally to think more widely about what it is that actual life would have been like on the sea for these individuals. And then that'll open up new questions of inquiry that hopefully we can explore collectively. That was Justin Dunavant, an expert of seagoing maroon communities. Supporters of Mumia Abu-Jamal, the nation's best known political prisoner, expected that he would undergo heart surgery for blocked arteries last week. But the Pennsylvania prison system won't even tell Mumia's family what medical plans they have for responding to Abu-Jamal's health crisis. A number of his supporters gathered for a press conference last Thursday in Philadelphia, hosted by educator Mark Lamont Hill. First up was Mumia's grandson, Jamal, who said the people's movement, not supposedly progressive district attorney, Larry Krasner, would ultimately free Mumia. You know, we just can't let Larry Krasner stand in the way of justice. Uh, we talked about being fair when I ran into him. Like he talked about like, hey, I wanna be fair, you know, and I can't free Mumia, you know, but like, you know, Mia has never, it was never a lot of fairness 
um, in 40 years, right? Um, Pennsylvania politicians springboarded their entire careers trying to kill my people. They like to appease, they like to empower the races in the state, right? You know, but not, not with the blood of my people, not my pop pop, right? Um, you know, personally, I'm like very worried. I've been like a little anxious. Um, you know, we know what they'll do to continue to silence people who inspire people. Uh, we need to stay on them. We need to stay ringing those phones. We need to let them know that we watch it, right? We need to hold them accountable because he's behind enemy lines right now, right? This is right before his birthday. You know, he talked to my pop on Friday a couple days after um, you know, he, he was he was laughing and, and counseling my dad on a life milestone, you know, poking fun at him. You know, the things that like a father does with a son, um, like my grandpa is like a man full of love. Right. And wit and humor, you know, and he's amazing. Right. Um, I couldn't even schedule a video chat with my grandpa, a video call. Right. And I called my pop and he was as confused as I was because he had just talked to him. Right. A couple of days before. Right. But little did I know that he was being smuggled secretly. You know, we didn't even know where he was. My grandfather, Mumia Abu-Jamal, is in the hospital, right? And he's been fighting, right? Um, just, you know, Mumia is an innocent man, you know, factually and legally, right? They know it. We know it. The world knows it. You know, we must not let up. Uh, we have to keep going. They'll keep trying to divide us, you know, and, like, uh, weaken our resolve, but they can't, right? The truth shines through all darkness. We're witnessing the continuation of a black resistance movement that came before us. We got to keep on our A game. We'll keep our voices high, make sure that they're uncomfortable. They've been making us uncomfortable forever. So we got to make sure that they uncomfortable when they walk through these streets talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter, right? Well, why they, you know, uh, continuously you know, and deliberately um, shun Mumia from freedom, right? Um, to hear my grandpa, you know, is undergoing surgery, you know, like I'm, I'm just like really, you know, like anxious, right? Um, Mumia Abu-Jamal is an educator, a journalist, a scholar. He's not a criminal, he's a man. We need to keep going hard. Make sure my grandfather is treated like a human being. No shackles when he's undergoing so surgery. Uh, the ability to contact his counsel, spiritual and personal. Um, the ability to contact his loved ones, right? You know, even though his blood runs through my veins, I know his words, his voice runs through y'all. You know, we all family. This is my pop's pop, my folks. He's the voice of all of us, right? All of the people, you know, he doesn't compromise. He speaks the truth. And that's why we have to do everything. We have to do everything we have to do to get him out. We're shoulder to shoulder fighting for his life of a black revolutionary who still smiles, who still laughs, who still loves, who still who's still empowered and inspires us all. Um, freedom is the only treatment at this point especially after 40 years, you know, he's getting aged, he's getting old. Freedom is the only treatment. Freedom is the only justice that the people will accept. That's all I got to say. Brother, you said a whole lot. Thank you. Um, 
you know, for, for so many people, Mumia is a cause. For some of us, he's a comrade and a friend. But for you, that's family. And that's a whole other level. And, and we understand that. And, and, and we will continue to fight uh, for his freedom. Uh, so you can see your grandfather in person. So he can tease your father about his age on a couch, not not through a cage. That's, that's, that's what this liberation movement is about. Up next is my, my dear brother, Mike Africa Jr., someone who we know as an activist, as a powerful voice, not just in the city of Philadelphia, but uh, but around around the, around the world. Uh, up next, uh, we have uh, Dr. Ricardo Alvarez. Uh, as y'all know, we many of you know, uh, he's been a longtime supporter of Mumia from the West Coast, and he's somebody uh, who's been investigating the medical aspect of what we're talking about, but also thinking more broadly about uh, pregnant women uh, during labor uh, medical rights, COVID, all the ways that the prison has compromised the, the health uh, of those caged inside of them. Um, Ricardo, come on up. Thank you so much. And I want to just really thank and honor our distinguished panelists, but also all the participants. Uh, Mumia is alive because of all the work and love of all the participants who've made calls and who've been involved for so many years, particularly the work of Pam and MOVE in allowing him to stay alive. I also wanna acknowledge that our movement is shifting in a way that I uh, am learning from the youth. And I'm seeing that the way that the youth are having connections with each other and finding creative ways of telling a story. As a medical provider, it's, uh, it's an honor for me to be a consultant on Momia's care and in some ways, this is very much a story about humanity and recognizing his dignity. When we speak about Mumia's dignity, we link to the suffering of others, other political prisoners and others who are in this situation of mass incarceration. And when we examine just one window of that with shackling, and then look more closely at shackling of pregnant women, we learn that there may be a federal law which prohibits shackling of women, but you find that 85% of pregnant women will be in state and counties. And so effectively, we're still allowing the shackling of women at the time that life is coming into earth. And it's symbolic of the larger issue that shackling has been so regularly accepted as standard practice. And it begins to open up a larger window of how we dehumanize the experience of those who are in prison. One aspect of imprison imprisonment that uh, 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 we have to pay particular attention to is the fact that the, the, the sentences are so long now that we're having more and more elders in prison. And it's, it's now uh, in some states up to close to 20%. And what we find is that there's actually data showing a phenomenon called accelerated aging. It makes sense. Under the stress of survival, even the federal government has now accepted the age of 50 as the beginning point of gerontology within the prison system, because it's so clear that the stresses of that system accelerate the aging process. Now, I want to focus a, a, a little bit on Mumia. I want to begin by saying that if in, as a consultant to Mumia, we begin by the reality 
that Mumia has medically documented evidence of harm. There's no question that Mumia suffered from liver cirrhosis as a result of the deliberately holding back of life-saving medications. Now they did that in violation of what proper societal guidelines are. And as the court case reveals, they actually did that even in their lax guidelines, they didn't even meet that standard. I also wanna say there is documented evidence that Mumia has suffered when he was put into a diabetic coma as a result of neglect of monitoring his sugar and then providing medication steroids orally and injecting in such a way that it is a known side effect to increase sugars. He, res he also suffers from COVID. COVID in prisons is a whole phenomenon. You can watch Wetzel saying to the state legislators, I need to reduce this population by at least another couple of thousand. Prisons create the conditions for COVID to spread rapidly. And it's an opportunity for us to examine the decarceration of our elders. Well, Mia reminds us, abolition is the mission. I wanna say as well that when we look at Mumia's health, one of the great risks to him, aside from his congestive heart failure, which has been clearly documented, is that there's a deep level of harm that comes to him from how he is being treated. Now, let's just examine, you've heard from Johanna and others on how something as basic as the medical right to consult your loved ones and your medical counsel prior to a procedure has been denied to him. I wanna make clear that to this date, I have not received any confirmation of what his medical condition is. I have spoken to no medical provider. There has been no access. I've been asked, what surgery is Mumia getting? And I have to tell you, I can't confirm it completely. What I suspect is that he will have a open heart surgery, which will be what's called a bypass graft. He will need multiple vessels to, to address the clogged arteries. But I'm in a situation now where I have to say that demand has not been met. And thank you for the strenuous efforts of everyone else who's allowed these openings. But what we're observing is really a, a degradation of, of, of what is a basic right of someone to seek counsel regarding his health care or her health care. But I have to say that one of the greatest, greatest harms to Mumia is state violence. Mumia's survival is really a testament to his strength. There is medically documented evidence that Mumia was brutally beaten the night of his arrest. And there's medically documented evidence that there was perjured testimony of his confession, his supposed confession. This is medical documentation. As such, there's a form of violence that occurs when the brutality of that situation is casually referred to in a Krasner brief around this is just Mumia resisting arrest. That's a form of violence that we're attempting to address. And that's a form of harm that comes to him. And it legitimates 
what we know in the, in the research literature, which is a legitimate distrust of larger institutions. He's formed, he, is, he has a legitimate distrust of the legal, medical, judicial, and police enforcement. These are professionals who have engaged with him in a way where the proper standards have not been met. And so at this time, I wanna say that we support Mumia from, a, from the only possible treatment, which is freedom. Free Mumia, free them all, free our elders in prison. Let's end this mass incarceration. Thank you. All right, free Mumia, free them all. What's the call? Free them all. Up next, we got Mark Lewis Taylor, uh, who wears so many hats. Obviously, educators from Mumia, Abu Jamal, uh, an advisor, a spiritual advisor to Mumia, a dear comrade and friend, uh, and just one of the most courageous and consistent voices uh, this world has to offer. Brother Taylor. Thanks, everybody, and uh, respect to all the family, especially Wadia and Jamal, Junior, Mike Africa, and those who are who are uh, working and existing and yet flourishing through this hard time. Like a lot of you, I went to sleep last night and woke up this morning not knowing where Mumia's body was. I knew we were going to be working. I knew there was resistance going on, but where was that body? And I had to get up and take off early and try to find out. My class uh, let me out and um, I was able to be at the prison at 845. And starting then I started experiencing reminders of what we're up against, which yet show us just how far we've come as I've seen it from the 90s on and I'm seeing it now in the younger generation stepping forward. I got to the prison. I was brusquely turned away by a prison guard who would not allow me in. He just said the prison is closed. I said I needed to speak to the superintendent. No, the prison is closed. Most interestingly, the guard was wearing an almost full face tube cloth mask styled as a Blue Lives Matter flag. Not usual uh, guard insignia, although I've seen more and more like that on the um, arm patches and insignia of some prison guards. But it reminded me, this is the face of mass incarceration. And it's not just the face of the prisons, it's the face of police power and white supremacy's accommodation of police power and that general state repression we are seeing across so many of the apparatuses of surveillance and repression. Well, I continued on. Uh, I went to two hospitals where I thought Mumia might be, uh, first in Pottsville and then Allentown, PA. We still haven't really confirmed where he is, but at the second one, I had two database computer workers in the hospital say that he was uh, in Allentown, and um, one of them even said he was in surgery, meaning not necessarily going through surgery, but I guess being ready for sur surgery. And it's interesting, we don't really know. I finally, by the way, while I was doing this, got a call back from the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections special counsel, uh, one Seth Holmes, who said that he had had uh, um, uh, a health official at Mahanoy call Wadia. I don't know if he really did or not, but he said he did. But notice, uh, no information was given to me as spiritual advisor, not enough specificities to Wadia and her family, surely. It's a call without real connection, a call without the cultivation and preservation of life-giving relationships. 
And this takes me to another point I want to make. And a number of people have already said this, and we're seeing it again, right? The state is out to isolate Mumia. And when you isolate someone in prison, like he's being isolated from his family, then there comes what another colleague scholar of mine writes about, atomization and then extermination. They want Mumia to slowly decay unto death in an unnatural way by their repressive means. We win and have one when we fight the isolation because that's the precursor to what the state wants, namely his extermination. I had to represent myself a lot today and I went with a ministerial caller today as a religious advisor, which I'm designated by the DOC as, but I prefer calling it a spiritual advisor because what spirit means in most language is something to do with breathing, keeping breath going. To be spiritual, as I see it, is to keep the passageways of life, connectedness to other people, family, friends, even the earth, even to one's own body. And how this state today is at war against connection is what we're up against and what we're seeing. In a way, Mumia is, own, is being separated from knowledge of his own body as he's not being told what he goes through. Although I hear he has a better doctor, we'll have to see, and I'm hoping uh, Dr. Alvarez gets more information. We are separated. His family is separated from knowing where his body is, and as Dr. Alvarez says, what his body is going through. This is a violation of any medical rights that I have ever heard of. And then finally, at the second hospital, I sent up a list of demands and requests uh, upstairs to the security that had come down frantically, which was a pretty good sign that was the right place because they were worried and wanted me to move along quickly. But I, what the first demand was, take the shackles off. No shackling. The movement and the family is clear about this. Let me finish by reading a quote from the AMA Journal of Ethics about shackling, why they are opposed to it, and they style it as a violation of privacy, but really it's such a more basic uh, degradation of justice that's at work here. But listen for the echoes of slavery in this definition that they give. They say that for an anesthetized patient undergoing an operation while shackled and observed by persons in positions of power is a violation of patient privacy that can lead to what? increased feelings of vulnerability, mistrust of healthcare professions, and reduced therapeutic effectiveness of the procedure. Again, though, in the oversight, as well as the reduction to observation, this is part of the afterlife of slavery, as some writers put it. The reduction of particularly the Black body, and twice as many Black women are shackled when they give birth, and are shackled and are seen on the street shackled as well as in the prisons. That is an attempt by the state to reduce the body to a commodified thing. Mumia has always resisted that. We have always resisted that. We're at a crucial juncture where we have to resist it again. And I'm confident that we will. Mumia will never be consigned to that. He'll always be present with us. He is present and fighting still. We'll see him soon, I'm quite sure. And I'm grateful for this press conference. That's one more step 
towards getting him out because the only treatment is his freedom for the freedom of all. Thank you. Powerful words from some long distance runners in their struggle to free Mumia. And again, the only treatment, the only treatment is freedom. Up next is my dear brother, Gabe Bryant, organizer, activist, and powerful comrade uh, in the struggle to free Mumia Abu Jamal. He's going to come up and bring us home. Gabe. Peace, family. Thank you, Mark, as always. And peace to the family for staying strong for the past hour and a half during this press conference. We are on the move. We are fired up. We are encouraged. And we are excited about the possibility of bringing our brother Mumia Abu Jamal uh, home. You have all heard the reasons why, from medical neglect to the legal. And now it is time to do what's right. All of us can contribute and participate in making sure that our dear brother Mumia Abu Jamal comes home sooner than ever before. Before we go any further, please stay tuned for www.letmumiaout.com, letmumiaout.com for updates, petitions, flyers, and further upcoming live streams, www.letmumiaout.com. Also, if you'd like to donate to this cause, to this movement, please go to mobilization, the number four, mumia.com. Again, mobilization, the number four, mumia.com to donate for updates, for news. Please stay abreast and spread the word. And also go to jamaljournal.blogspot.com. We have re-earthed and unearthed the Jamal Journal to reignite the passion and the spirit of our dear brother, who was a radical journalist, premier radical journalist, Mumia Abu Jamal, the Jamal Journal for updates and news. As we go forward, we want to give folks the update on where, where we are right now. We should all be spirited. We should all be confident. We should all have the imagination and the hope that Mumia will come home. Why? Because Albert Woodfox, after several decades incarcerated, is home. Robert King, home. Sekou Odinga, home. Debbie Africa, home. Mike Africa Sr., home. Eddie Africa, home. Chuck Africa, home. Herman Bell, home. The work of the masses of the people brought the people home. Oscar Lopez Rivera, home. These were individuals that the state wanted to extinguish, wanted to be forgotten. But the people said no. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.